Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. Conan by Robert E. Howard. Episode 6. The Black Colossus. Part 2. Chapter 3. In the early haze of dawn, the streets of Coraja were thronged by crowds of people who watched the hosts riding from the southern gate. The army was on the move at last. There were the knights, gleaming in richly wrought plate armor, colored plumes waving above their burnished salads. Their steeds, caparisoned with silk, lacquered leather and gold buckles, caracoled and curveted as their riders put them through their paces. The early light struck glints from lance points that rose like a forest above the array, their pennants flowing in the breeze. Each knight wore a lady's token, a glove, scarf or rose, bound to his helmet or fastened to his sword belt. They were the chivalry of Coraja, five hundred strong, led by Count Thespides, who, men said, aspired to the hand of Yasmela herself. They were followed by the light cavalry on rangy steeds. The riders were typical hillmen, lean and hawk-faced. Peak steel caps were on their heads and chainmail glinted under their flowing caftans. Their main weapon was the terrible Shemitish bow, which could send a shaft five hundred paces. There were five thousand of these, and Shupras rode at their head, his lean face moody beneath his spired helmet. Close on their heels marched the Karaja spearmen, always comparatively few in any Hyborian state, where men thought cavalry the only honorable branch of service. These, like the knights, were of ancient Gothic blood, sons of ruined families, broken men, penniless youths who could not afford horses and plate armor, five hundred of them. The mercenaries brought up the rear, a thousand horsemen, two thousand spearmen. The tall horses of the cavalry seemed hard and savage as their riders. They made no curvets or gambades. There was a grimly business-like aspect to these professional killers, veterans of bloody campaigns. Clad from head to foot in chainmail, they wore their visiless headpieces over linked coifs. Their shields were unadorned, their long lances without guidons. At their saddlebows hung battle axes or steel maces, and each man wore at his hip a long broadsword. The spearmen were armed in much the same manner, though they bore pikes instead of cavalry lances. They were men of many races and many crimes. They were tall Hyperboreans, gaunt, big-boned, of slow speech and violent natures, tawny-haired Gundermen from the hills of the northwest, swaggering Corinthian renegades, swarthy Zingarians with bristling black moustaches and fiery tempers, Aquilonians from the distant west, but all except the Zingarians were Hyborians. Behind all came a camel in rich housings, led by a knight on a great warhorse, and surrounded by a clump of picked fighters from the royal house troops. Its rider, under the silken canopy of the seat, was a slim, silk-clad figure, at the sight of which the populace, always mindful of royalty, threw up its leather cap and cheered wildly. Conan the Cimmerian, restless in his plate armor, stared at the bedecked camel with no great approval and spoke to Amalric, who rode beside him, resplendent in chain mail threaded with gold, golden breastplate and helmet, with flowing horsehair crest. The princess would go with us. She's supple, but too soft for this work. Anyway, she'll have to get out of these robes. Amalric twisted his yellow moustache to hide a grin. 
evidently Conan supposed Yasmela intended to strap on a sword and take part in the actual fighting, as the barbarian women often fought. The women of the Hyborians do not fight like your Sumerian women, Conan, he said. Yasmela rides with us to watch the battle. Anyway, he shifted in his saddle and lowered his voice. Between you and me, I have an idea that the princess dares not remain behind. She fears something. An uprising. Maybe we'd better hang a few citizens before we start. No, one of her maids talked, babbled about something that came into the palace by night, and frightened Yasmela half out of her wits. It's some of Natok's deviltry, I doubt not. Conan, it's more than flesh and blood we fight. Well, grunted the Sumerian, it's better to go meet an enemy than to wait for him. He glanced at the long line of wagons and camp followers, gathered the reins in his mailed hand, and spoke from habit the phrase of the marching mercenaries. Hell or plunder, comrades, march! Behind the long train, the ponderous gates of Karaja closed. Eager heads lined the battlements. The citizens well knew they were watching life or death go forth. If the host was overthrown, the future of Koraja would be written in blood. In the hordes swarming up from the savage south, mercy was a quality unknown. All day the columns marched, through grassy rolling meadowlands, cut by small rivers, the terrain gradually beginning to slope upward. Ahead of them lay a range of low hills, sweeping in an unbroken rampart from east to west. They camped that night on the northern slopes of those hills, and hook-nosed, Fiery-eyed men of the hill tribes came in scores to squat about the fires and repeat news that had come up out of the mysterious desert. Through their tails ran the name of Natok like a crawling serpent. At his bidding, the demons of the air brought thunder and wind and fog. The fiends of the underworld shook the earth with awful roaring. He brought fire out of the air and consumed the gates of walled cities and burnt armored men to bits of charred bone. His warriors covered the desert with their numbers, and he had five thousand Stygian troops in war chariots under the rebel prince Kutamun. Conan listened unperturbed. War was his trade. Life was a continual battle, or series of battles since his birth. Death had been a constant companion. It stalked horrifically at his side, stood at his shoulder beside the gaming tables. Its bony fingers rattled the wine cups. It loomed above him a hooded and monstrous shadow when he lay down to sleep. He minded its presence no more than a king minds the presence of his cup-bearer. Someday its bony grasp would close. That was all. It was enough that he lived through the present. However, others were less careless of fear than he. Striding back from the sentry lines, Conan halted as a slender cloaked figure stayed him with an outstretched hand. Princess, you should be in your tent. I could not sleep. Her dark eyes were haunted in the shadow. Conan, I am afraid. Are there men in the host you fear? His hand locked on his hilt. No man, she shuddered. Conan, is there anything you fear? He considered tugging at his chin. Aye, he admitted at last. The curse of the gods. Again she shuddered. I, I am cursed. A fiend from the abysses has set his mark upon me. Night after night, he lurks in the shadows, whispering awful secrets to me. He will drag me down to be his queen in hell. I dare not sleep. He will come to me in my pavilion as he came in the palace. Conan, you are strong. Keep me with you. I am afraid. She was no longer a princess, but only a terrified girl. Her pride had fallen from her 
leaving her unashamed in her nakedness. In her frantic fear, she'd come to him who seemed strongest. The ruthless power that had repelled her drew her now. For answer, he drew off his scarlet cloak and wrapped it about her, roughly, as if tenderness of any kind were impossible to him. His iron hand rested for an instant on her slender shoulder, and she shivered again, but not with fear. Like an electric shock, a surge of animal vitality swept over her at his mere touch, as if some of his superabundant strength had been imparted to her. Lie here, he indicated a clean-swept space close to a small flickering fire. He saw no incongruity in a princess lying down on the naked ground beside a campfire, wrapped in a warrior's cloak, but she obeyed without question. He seated himself near her on a boulder, his broadsword across his knees. With the firelight glinting from his blue steel armor, he seemed like an image of steel. Dynamic power for the moment quiescent, not resting but motionless for the instant, awaiting the signal to plunge again into terrific action. The firelight played on his features, making them seem as if carved out of substance shadowy yet hard as steel. They were immobile, but his eyes smoldered with fierce life. He was not merely a wild man, he was part of the wild, one with the untamable elements of life. In his veins ran the blood of the wolf pack, in his brain lurked the brooding depths of the northern night, his heart throbbed with the fire of blazing forests. So half meditating, half dreaming, Yasmela dropped off to sleep, wrapped in a sense of delicious security. Somehow, she knew that no flame-eyed shadow would bend over her in the darkness, with this grim figure from the outland standing guard above her. Yet once again she wakened, to shudder in cosmic fear, though not because of anything she saw. It was a low mutter of voices that roused her. Opening her eyes, she saw that the fire was burning low. A feeling of dawn was in the air. She could dimly see that Conan still sat on the boulder. She glimpsed the long blue glimmer of his blade. Close beside him crouched another figure, on which the dying fire cast a faint glow. Yasmela drowsily made out a hooked beak of a nose, a glittering bead of an eye, under a white turban. The man was speaking rapidly in a Shemite dialect she found hard to understand. Let Bell wither my arm. I speak truth. By Durketo, Conan, I am a prince of liars. But I do not lie to an old comrade. I swear by the days when we were thieves together in the land of Zamora before you donned Halberk. I saw Natok. With the others, I knelt before him when he made incantations to set. But I did not thrust my nose in the sand as the rest did. I am a thief of Shumir, and my sight is keener than a weasel's. I squinted up and saw his veil blowing in the wind. It blew aside, and I saw, I saw. They'll aid me, Conan. I say I saw. My blood froze in my veins and my hair stood up. What I had seen burned my soul like a red-hot iron. I could not rest until I had made sure. I journeyed to the ruins of Kathshamese. The door of the ivory dome stood open. In the doorway lay a great serpent, transfixed by a sword. Within the dome lay the body of a man, so shriveled and distorted I could scarce make it out at first. It was Shevatas, the Zamorian, the only thief in the world I acknowledged as my superior. The treasure was untouched. It lay in shimmering heaps about the corpse. That was all. There were no bones, began Conan. There was nothing, broke in the Shemite passionately. Nothing! Only the one corpse! Silence reigned an instant, and Yasmela shrank with a crawling, nameless horror. Whence came Natok, rose the Shemite's vibrant whisper, 
Out of the desert on a night when the world was blind and wild with mad clouds, driven in frenzied flight across the shuddering stars, and the howling of the wind was mingled with the shrieking of the spirits of the wastes. Vampires were abroad that night, witches rode naked on the wind, and werewolves howled across the wilderness. On a black camel he came, riding like the wind, and an unholy fire played about him. The cloven tracks of the camel glowed in the darkness. When Natok dismounted before Set's shrine by the oasis of Athakar, the beast swept into the night and vanished, and I have talked with tribesmen who swore that it suddenly spread gigantic wings and rushed upwards into the clouds, leaving a trail of fire behind it. No man has seen that camel since that night, but a black, brutish, man-like shape shambles to Natok's tent and gibbers to him in the blackness before dawn. I will tell you, Conan, Natok is... Look... I will show you an image of what I saw that day by Shushan when the wind blew aside his veil. Yasmela saw the glint of gold in the Shemite's hand as the men bent closely over something. She heard Conan grunt, and suddenly blackness rolled over her. For the first time in her life, Princess Yasmela had fainted. Chapter 4 Dawn was still a hint of whiteness in the east when the army was again on the march. Tribesmen had raced into camp, their steeds reeling from the long ride to report the desert horde encamped at the well of Ultaku. So through the hills, the soldiers pushed hastily, leaving the wagon trains to follow. Yasmela rode with them. Her eyes were haunted. The nameless horror had been taking even more awful shape since she had recognized the coin in the Shemite's hand the night before, one of those secretly molded by the degraded Zujite cult bearing the features of a man dead three thousand years. The way wound between ragged cliffs and gaunt crags, towering over narrow valleys. Here and there villages perched, huddles of stone huts plastered with mud. The tribesmen swarmed out to join their kin, so that before they had traversed the hills, the host had been swelled by some three thousand wild archers. Abruptly, they came out of the hills and caught their breath at the vast expanse that swept away to the south. On the southern side, the hills fell away, sheerly, marking a distinct geographical division between the Kothian uplands and the southern desert. The hills were the rim of the uplands, stretching in an almost unbroken wall. Here they were, bare and desolate, inhabited only by the Zahimi clan, whose duty it was to guard the caravan road. Beyond the hills, the desert stretched bare, dusty, lifeless. Yet beyond its horizon lay the well of Altaku and the horde of Natok. The army looked down on the pass of Shamla, through which flowed the wealth of the north and the south, and through which had marched the armies of Koth, Karaja, Shem, Turan, and Stija. Here the sheer wall of the rampart was broken. Promontories ran out into the desert, forming barren valleys, all but one of which were closed on the northern extremity by rugged cliffs. This one was the pass. It was much like a great hand extended from the hills. Two fingers, parted, formed a fan-shaped valley. The fingers were represented by a broad ridge on either hand, the outer sides sheer, the inner steep slopes. The veil pitched upward as it narrowed, to come out on a plateau, flanked by gully-torn slopes. A well was there, at a cluster of stone towers, occupied by the Zahemis. There Conan halted, swinging off his horse. He had discarded the plate armor for the more familiar chain mail. Vespides reined in and demanded, Why do you halt? Well, await them here, answered Conan. 
"'Twere more likely to ride out and meet them,' snapped the Count. "'They'd smother us with numbers,' answered the Cimmerian. "'Besides, there's no water out there. We'll camp on the plateau.' "'My knights and I camp in the valley,' retorted Thespides angrily. "'We are the vanguard, and we, at least, do not fear a ragged desert swarm.' Conan shrugged his shoulders, and the angry nobleman rode away. Amalric halted in his bellowing order to watch the glittering company riding down the slope into the valley. The fools. Their canteens will soon be empty, and they'll have to ride back up to the well to water their horses. Let them be, replied Conan. It goes hard for them to take orders from me. Tell the dog brothers to ease their harness and rest. We've marched hard and fast. Water the horses and let the men munch. No need to send out scouts. The desert lay bare to the gaze, though just now this view was limited by low-lying clouds, which rested in whitish masses on the southern horizon. The monotony was broken only by a jutting tangle of stone ruins, some miles out on the desert, reputedly the remnants of an ancient Stygian temple. Conan dismounted the archers and ranged them along the ridges with the wild tribesmen. He stationed the mercenaries and the Karaji spearmen on the plateau about the well. Farther back, in the angle where the hill road debouched on the plateau, was pitched Yasmela's pavilion. With no enemy in sight, the warriors relaxed. Bassinets were doffed, coifs thrown back on mailed shoulders, belts let out. Rude jests flew back and forth as the fighting men dored beef and thrust their muzzles deep into ale jugs. Along the slopes, the hillmen made themselves at ease, nibbling dates and olives. Amalric strode up to where Conan sat bareheaded on a boulder. Conan, have you heard what the tribesmen say about Natok? They say, Mitra, it's too mad even to repeat. What do you think? Seeds rest in the ground for centuries without rotting sometimes, answered Conan. But surely Natok is a man. I'm not sure, grunted Amalric. At any rate, you've arranged your lines as well as a seasoned general could have done. It's certain Nadok's devils can fall on us unawares. Mitra, what a fog. I thought it was clouds at first, answered Conan. See how it rolls. What had seemed clouds was a thick mist moving northward like a great unstable ocean, rapidly hiding the desert from view. Soon it engulfed the Stygian ruins, and still it rolled onward. The army watched in amazement. It was a thing unprecedented, unnatural and inexplicable. No use sending out scouts, said Amalric disgustedly. They couldn't see anything. Its edges are near the outer flanges of the ridges. Soon the whole pass and these hills will be masked. Conan, who had been watching the rolling mist with growing nervousness, bent suddenly and laid his ear to the earth. He sprang up with frantic haste, swearing, Horses and chariots, thousands of them. The ground vibrates to their tread. Oh, there! His voice thundered out across the valley to electrify the lounging men. Bergamots and pikes, you dogs! Stand to your ranks! At that, as the warriors scrambled into their lines, hastily donning headpieces and thrusting arms through shield straps, the mist rolled away as something no longer useful. It did not slowly lift and fade like a natural fog. It simply vanished like a blown-out flame. One moment, the whole desert was hidden with the rolling fleecy billows, piled mountainously, stratum above stratum. The next, the sun shone from a cloudless sky on a naked desert, no longer empty, but thronged with the living pageantry of war. A great shout shook the hills. 
At first glance, the amazed watchers seemed to be looking down upon a glittering, sparkling sea of bronze and gold, where steel points twinkled like a myriad stars. With the lifting of the fog, the invaders had halted as if frozen, in long serried lines, flaming in the sun. First was a long line of chariots, drawn by the great fierce horses of Stygia, with plumes on their heads, snorting and rearing as each naked driver leaned back, bracing his powerful legs, his dusky arms knotted with muscles. The fighting men in the chariots were tall figures, their hawk-like faces set off by bronze helmets, crested with a crescent supporting a golden ball. Heavy bows were in their hands. No common archers, these, but nobles of the south, bred the war and the hunt, who were accustomed to bringing down lions with their arrows. Behind these came a motley array of wild men on half-wild horses, the warriors of Cush, the first of the great black kingdoms of the grasslands south of Stygia. They were shining ebony, supple and lithe, riding stark naked and without saddle or bridle. After these rolled a horde that seemed to encompass all the desert. Thousands on thousands of the warlike sons of Shem, ranks of horsemen in scale mail corslets and cylindrical helmets, the Ashuri of Nippur, Shumir and Aruk and their sister cities, wild white-robed hordes, the nomad clans. Now the ranks began to mill and eddy. The chariots drew off to one side while the main host came uncertainly onward. Down in the valley the knights had mounted, and now Count Thespides galloped up the slope to where Conan stood. He did not deign to dismount, but spoke abruptly from the saddle. The lifting of the mist has confused them. Now is the time to charge. The Cushites have no bows, and they mask the whole advance. A charge of my knights will crush them back into the ranks of the Shemites, disrupting their formation. Follow me. We will win this battle with one stroke. Conan shook his head. Were we fighting a natural foe, I would agree. But this confusion is more feigned than real, as if to draw us into a charge. I fear a trap. Then you refuse to move, cried Thespides, his face dark with passion. Be reasonable, expostulated Conan. We have the advantage of position. With a furious oath, Thespides wheeled and galloped back down the valley where his knights waited impatiently. Amalric shook his head. You should not have let him return, Conan. Aye, look there. Conan sprang up with a curse. Despedes had swept in beside his men. They could hear his impassioned voice faintly, but his gesture toward the approaching horde was significant enough. In another instant, five hundred lances dipped and steel-clad company was thundering down the valley. A young page came running from Yasmela's pavilion, crying to Conan in a shrill, eager voice. My lord, the princess asks why you do not follow and support Count Thespedes. Because I am not so great a fool as he, grunted Conan, reseating himself on the boulder and beginning to gnaw a huge beef bone. You grow sober with authority, quoth Amalric. Such madness as that was always your particular joy. Aye, when I had only my own life to consider, answered Conan. Now, what in hell? The horde had halted. From the extreme wing rushed a chariot, the naked charioteer lashing the steeds like a madman. The other occupant was a tall figure, whose robe floated spectrally on the wind. He held in his arms a great vessel of gold, and from it poured a thin stream that sparkled in the sunlight. Across the whole front of the desert horde, the chariot swept, and behind its thundering wheels was left, like the wake behind a ship, 
a long, thin, powdery line that glittered in the sands like the phosphorescent track of a serpent. That's Natok, swore Amalric. What hellish seed is he sowing? The charging knights had not checked their headlong pace. Another fifty paces and they would crash into the uneven Kushite ranks, which stood motionless, spears lifted. Now the foremost knights had reached the thin line that glittered across the sands. They did not heed that crawling menace. But as the steel-shod hooves of the horses struck it, it was as when steel strikes flint, but with more terrible result. A terrific explosion rocked the desert, which seemed to split apart along the strewn line with an awful burst of white flame. In that instant, the whole foremost line of the knights was seen enveloped in that flame, horses and steel-clad riders withering in the glare like insects in an open blaze. The next instant, the rear ranks were piling up on their charred bodies. Unable to check their headlong velocity, rank after rank crashed into the ruins. With appalling suddenness, the charge had turned into a shambles where armoured figures died amid screaming, mangled horses. Now the illusion of confusion vanished as the horde settled into orderly lines. The wild Kushites rushed into the shambles, spearing the wounded, bursting the helmets of the knights with stones and iron hammers. It was all over so quickly that the watchers on the slope stood dazed, and again the horde moved forward, splitting to avoid the charred waste of corpses. From the hills went up a cry, We fight, not men, but devils. On either ridge, the hillmen wavered. One rushed toward the plateau, froth dripping from his beard. Flee, flee, he slobbered. Who can fight Maddox's magic? With a snarl, Conan bounded from his boulder and smote him with the beef bone. He dropped, blood starting from nose and mouth. Conan drew his sword, his eyes slits of blue bale fire. Back to your posts, he yelled. Let another take a backward step and I'll shear off his head. Fight, damn you! The rout halted as quickly as it had begun. Conan's fierce personality was like a dash of ice water in their whirling blaze of terror. Take your places, he directed quickly, and stand to it. Neither man nor devil comes up Shamla Pass this day. Where the plateau rim broke to the valley slope, the mercenaries braced their belts and gripped their spears. Behind them, the lancers sat their steeds and to one side were stationed the Karaja spearmen as reserves. To Yasmela, standing white and speechless at the door of her tent, the host seemed a pitiful handful in comparison to the thronging desert horde. Conan stood among the spearmen. He knew the invaders would not try to drive a chariot charge up the pass in the teeth of the archers, but he grunted with surprise to see the riders dismounting. These wild men had no supply trains. Canteens and pouches hung at their saddle peaks. Now they drank the last of their water and threw the canteens away. This is the death grip, he muttered as the lines formed on foot. I'd rather have had a cavalry charge, wounded horses bolt and ruin formations. The horde had formed into a huge wedge, of which the tip was the Stygians, and the body, the mailed Ashuri, flanked by the nomads. In close formation, shields lifted. They rolled onward, while behind them, a tall figure in a motionless chariot lifted wide-robed arms in grisly invocation. As the horde entered the wide valley mouth, the hillmen loosed their shafts. In spite of the protective formation, men dropped by dozens. The Stygians had discarded their bows, helmeted heads bent to the blast, dark eyes glaring over the rims of their shields. They came on in an inexorable surge, 
striding over their fallen comrades. But the Shemites gave back the fire, and the clouds of arrows darkened the skies. Conan gazed over the billowing waves of spears, and wondered what new horror the sorcerer would invoke. Somehow he felt that Natok, like all his kind, was more terrible in defense than in attack. To take the offensive against him invited disaster. But surely it was magic that drove the horde on in the teeth of death. Conan caught his breath at the havoc wrought in the onsweeping ranks. The edges of the wedge seemed to be melting away, and already the valley was strewn with dead men. Yet the survivors came on like madmen unaware of death. By the very numbers of their bows, they began to swamp the archers on the cliffs. Clouds of shafts sped upward, driving the hillmen to cover. Panic struck at their hearts at that unwavering advance, and they plied their bows madly, eyes glaring like trapped wolves. As the horde neared the narrower neck of the pass, boulders thundered down, crushing men by the scores. But the charge did not waver. Conan's wolves braced themselves for the inevitable concussion. In their close formation and superior armor, they took little hurt from the arrows. It was the impact of the charge Conan feared, where the huge wedge should crash against his thin ranks. And he realized now there was no breaking of that onslaught. He gripped the shoulder of a Zahimi who stood near. Is there any way by which mounted men can get down into the blind valley beyond that western ridge? Aye, a steep, perilous path, secret and eternally guarded. But Conan was dragging him along to where Amalric sat, his great war horse. Amalric, he snapped. Follow this man. He'll lead you into yon outer valley. Ride down it, circle the end of the ridge, and strike the horde from the rear. Speak not, but go. I know it's madness, but we're doomed anyway. We'll do all the damage we can before we die. Haste. Amalric's mustache bristled in a fierce grin, and a few moments later his lancers were following the guide into a tangle of gorges leading off from the plateau. Conan ran back to the pikeman, sword in hand. It was not too soon. On either ridge, Shuppress's hillmen, mad with anticipation of defeat, rained down their shafts desperately. Men died like flies in the valley and along the slopes, and with a roar and an irresistible upward surge, the Stygians crashed against the mercenaries. In a hurricane of thundering steel, the lines twisted and swayed. It was war-bred noble against professional soldier. Shields crashed against shields, and between them spears drove in and blood spurted. Conan saw the mighty form of Prince Cotterman across the Sea of Swords, but the press held him hard, breast to breast with dark shapes that gasped and slashed. Behind the Stygians, the Ashuri were surging and yelling. On either hand, the nomads climbed the cliffs and came to hand grips with their mountain kin. All along the crests of the ridges, the combat raged in blind, gasping ferocity, tooth and nail frothing mad with fanaticism and ancient feuds. The tribesmen rent and slew and died, wild hair flying, the naked Kushites ran howling into the fray. It seemed to Conan that his sweat-blinded eyes looked down into a rising ocean of steel that seethed and eddied, filling the valley from ridge to ridge. The fight was at a bloody deadlock. The hillmen held the ridges and the mercenaries, gripping their dipping pikes, bracing their feet in the bloody earth, held the pass. Superior position and armor for a space balanced the advantage of overwhelming numbers, but it could not endure. Wave after wave of glaring faces and flashing spears surged up the slope, the Ashuri filling the gaps in the Stygian ranks. 
Conan looked to see Amalric's lancers rounding the western ridge, but they did not come, and the pikemen began to reel back under the shocks, and Conan abandoned all hope of victory and of life. Yelling a command to his gasping captains, he broke away and raced across the plateau to the Carada reserves, who stood trembling with eagerness. He did not glance toward Yasmela's pavilion. He had forgotten the princess. His one thought was the wild beast instinct to slay before he died. This day you become knights, he laughed fiercely, pointing with his dripping sword toward the hillmen's horses, herded nearby. Mount, and follow me to hell. The hillsteed reared wildly under the unfamiliar clash of the Gothic armor, and Conan's gusty laugh rose above the din as he led them to where the eastern ridge branched away from the plateau. Five hundred footmen, pauper patricians, younger sons, black sheep, on half-wild Shemite horses, charging an army down a slope where no cavalry had ever dared charge before. Past the battle-choked mouth of the pass they thundered, out onto the corpse-littered ridge. Down the steep slope they rushed, and a score lost their footing and rolled under the hooves of their comrades. Below them, men screamed and threw up their arms, and the thundering charge ripped through them as an avalanche cuts through a forest of saplings. On through the close-packed throngs, the Karajis hurtled, leaving a crushed-down carpet of dead. And then, as the horde writhed and coiled upon itself, Amalric's lancers, having cut through a cordon of horsemen encountered in the outer valley, swept around the extremity of the western ridge and smote the host in a steel-tipped wedge, splitting it asunder. His attack carried all the dazing demoralization of a surprise on the rear. Thinking themselves flanked by a superior force and frenzied at the fear of being cut off from the desert, swarms of nomads broke and stampeded, working havoc in the ranks of their more steadfast comrades. These staggered and the horsemen rode through them. Up on the ridges, the desert fighters wavered and the hillmen fell on them with renewed fury, driving them down the slopes. Stunned by surprise, the horde broke before they had time to see it was but a handful which assailed them. And once broken, not even a magician could weld such a horde again. Across the sea of heads and spears, Conan's madmen saw Amalric's riders forging steadily through the rout to the rise and fall of axes and maces, and a mad joy of victory exalted each man's heart and made his arms steel. Bracing their feet in the wallowing sea of blood, whose crimson waves lapped about their ankles, the pikemen in the pass-mouth drove forward, crushing strongly against the milling ranks before them. The Stygians held, but behind them the press of the Ashuri melted, and over the bodies of the nobles of the south who died in their tracks to a man, the mercenaries rolled to split and crumple the wavering mass behind. Up on the cliffs old Shapras lay with an arrow through his heart. Amalric was down, swearing like a pirate, a spear through his mailed thigh. Of Conan's mounted infantry, scarce a hundred and fifty remained in the saddle, but the horde was shattered. Nomads and mailed spearmen broke away, fleeing to their camp where their horses were, and the hillmen swarmed down the slopes, stabbing the fugitives in the back, cutting the throats of the wounded. In the swirling red chaos, a terrible apparition suddenly appeared before Conan's rearing steed. It was Prince Kutamun, naked but for a loincloth, his harness hacked away, his crested helmet dented, his limbs splashed with blood. With a terrible shout, he hurled his broken hilt full into Conan's face, and leaping, seized the stallion's bridle. 
The Cimmerian reeled in his saddle, half-stunned, and with awful strength, the dark-skinned giant forced the screaming steed upward and backward, until it lost its footing and crashed into the muck of bloody sand and writhing bodies. Conan sprang clear as the horse fell, and with a roar, Kutamon was on him. In that mad nightmare of battle, the barbarian never exactly knew how he killed his man. He only knew that a stone in the Stygian's hand crashed again and again on his bassinet, filling his sight with flashing sparks as Conan drove his dagger again and again into his foe's body, without apparent effect on the prince's terrible vitality. The world was swimming to Conan's sight, when with a convulsive shudder, the frame that strained against his stiffened and then went limp. Reeling up, blood streaming down his face from under his dented helmet, Conan glared dizzily at the profusion of destruction which spread before him. From crest to crest, the dead lay strewn, a red carpet that choked the valley. It was like a red sea, with each wave a straggling line of corpses. They choked the neck of the pass, they littered the slopes. And down in the desert the slaughter continued, where the survivors of the horde had reached their horses and streamed out across the waste, pursued by the weary victors, and Conan stood appalled as he noted how few of these were left to pursue. Then an awful scream rent the clamor. Up the valley, a chariot came flying, making nothing of the heaped corpses. No horses drew it, but a great black creature that was like a camel. In the chariot stood Natok, his robes flying, and gripping the reins and lashing like mad, crouched a black anthropomorphic being that might have been a monster ape. With a rush of burning wind, the chariot swept up the corpse-littered slope, straight toward the pavilion where Yasmela stood alone, deserted by her guards in the frenzy of pursuit. Conan, standing frozen, heard her frenzied scream as Natok's long arms swept her up into the chariot. Then the grisly steed wheeled and came racing back down the valley, and no man dared speed arrow or spear lest he strike Yasmela, who writhed in Natok's arms. With an inhuman cry, Conan caught up his fallen sword and leapt into the path of the hurtling horror. But even as his sword went up, the forefeet of the black beast smote him like a thunderbolt and sent him hurtling a score feet away, dazed and bruised. Yasmela's cry came hauntingly to his stunned ears as the chariot roared by. A yell that had nothing of the human in its timber rang from his lips as Conan rebounded from the bloody earth and seized the rein of a riderless horse that raced past him, throwing himself into the saddle without bringing the charger to a halt. With mad abandon, he raced after the rapidly receding chariot. He struck the levels flying and passed like a whirlwind through the Shemite camp. Into the desert he fled, passing clumps of his own riders and hard-spurring desert horsemen. On flew the chariot, and on raced Conan, though his horse began to reel beneath him. Now the open desert lay all about them, bathed in the lurid desolate splendor of sunset. Before him rose up the ancient ruins, and with a shriek that froze, the blood in Conan's veins, the unhuman charioteer cast Natok and the girl from him. They rolled on the sand, and to Conan's dazed gaze, the chariot and its steed altered awfully. Great wings spread from a black horror that in no way resembled a camel, and it rushed upward into the sky, bearing in its wake a shape of blinding flame in which a black man-like shape gibbered in ghastly triumph. So quickly it passed that it was like the rush of a nightmare through a horror-haunted dream. 
Natok sprang up, cast a swift look at his grim pursuer, who had not halted but came riding hard, with sword swinging low and spattering red drops, and the sorcerer caught up the fainting girl and ran with her into the ruins. Conan leapt from his horse and plunged after them. He came into a room that glowed with unholy radiance, though outside the dusk was falling swiftly. On a black jade altar lay Yasmela, her naked body gleaming like ivory in the weird light. Her garments lay strewn on the floor, as if ripped from her in brutal haste. Natok faced the Cimmerian, inhumanly tall and lean, clad in shimmering green silk. He tossed back his veil and Conan looked into the features he had seen depicted on the Zujite coin. I blench dog. The voice was like the hiss of a giant serpent. I am Thugra Coton. Long I lay in my tomb, awaiting the day of awakening and release. The arts which saved me from the barbarians long ago likewise imprisoned me. But I knew one would come in time, and he came to fulfill his destiny, and to die as no man has died in three thousand years. Fool, do you think you have conquered because my people are scattered? Because I have been betrayed and deserted by the demon I enslaved? I am Fulgra Kotan, who shall rule the world despite your paltry gods. The desert is filled with my people. The demons of the earth shall do my bidding, as the reptiles of the earth obey me. Lust for a woman weakened my sorcery. Now the woman is mine, and feasting on her soul, I shall be unconquerable. Back, fool, you have not conquered Thugra Kotan. He cast his staff, and it fell at the feet of Conan, who recoiled with an involuntary cry, for as it fell, it altered horribly, its outline melted and writhed, and a hooded cobra reared up hissing before the horrified Cimmerian. With a furious oath, Conan struck, and his sword sheared the horrid shape in half, and there at his feet lay only the two pieces of a severed ebon staff. Sugra Kotan laughed awfully, and wheeling, caught up something that crawled loathsomely in the dust of the floor. In his extended hand, something alive writhed and slavered. No tricks of shadows this time. In his naked hand, Thugra Kotan gripped a black scorpion, more than a foot in length, the deadliest creature of the desert, the stroke of whose spiked tail was instant death. Fabra Kotan's skull-like countenance split in a mummy-like grin. Conan hesitated. Then, without warning, he threw his sword. Caught off guard, Thugra Kotan had no time to avoid the cast. The point struck beneath his heart and stood out a foot behind his shoulders. He went down, crushing the poisonous monster in his grasp as he fell. Conan strode to the altar, lifting Yasmela in his blood-stained arms. She threw her white arms convulsively about his mailed neck, sobbing hysterically, and would not let him go. Crom's devils, girl, he grunted. Loose me. Fifty thousand men have perished today, and there is work for me to do. No, she gasped, clinging with convulsive strength, as barbaric for the instant as he in her fear and passion. I will not let you go. I am yours by fire and steel and blood. You are mine. Back there, I belong to others. Here I am mine, and yours. You shall not go. He hesitated, his own brain reeling with the fierce upsurging of his violent passions. The lurid, unearthly glow still hovered in the shadowy chamber, lighting ghostlily the dead face of Thor Grakotan, which seemed to grin mirthlessly and cavernously at them. Out on the desert, in the hills among the oceans of dead, men were dying, 
were howling with wounds and thirst and madness, and kingdoms were staggering. Then all was swept away by the crimson tide that rode madly in Conan's soul as he crushed fiercely in his iron arms the slim white body that shimmered like a witch fire of madness before him. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production. 